0: Hi everybody, welcome to our next episode of Exponential Wisdom. I'm here with my dear friend, Dan Sullivan. And today we're gonna talk about something that is near and dear to both of our hearts, and it's the entrepreneurial journey. Mm -hmm. We haven't had a chance to talk about this, Dan, but like, what makes an entrepreneur? What are the highs and lows, the pros, the cons of being an entrepreneur? What does it mean to be an entrepreneur? How do you succeed at it? And how do you know if it's right for you? So uh, this is a subject that both you and I exude from our pores and excited to jump in. Well, it's a very
1: recent concept because if you go back and check the dictionary, the best definition was 1804. And that was a Frenchman by the name of Jean Baptiste Say. And he said, entrepreneurs are someone who takes resources from a lower level of productivity to a higher level of productivity. So entrepreneurs improve things they take existing things they create new things but they take resources and he was asked what kind of resource and he said any kind of resource Mm -hmm. just a little note and then i'll pass it on to you whether you've heard other definitions but he was asked and entrepreneur was a really new term as we use it today and his whole belief was that it was the industrial revolution that really created a whole new class of individuals who could literally come from nowhere and become major economic players, unlike anything that had happened before. Technically, the Industrial Revolution starts in 1776, in March of 1776, and it's when James Watt introduced an improved steam engine that got a 25% energy return, which was phenomenal. Uh-huh. It'd probably be, it'd still be phenomenal in some centers, but it was that sudden where almost any individual who was ambitious, who was enterprising, who was ingenious could now use a new technology to massively transform productivity in all existing industries. Starting with basically the fabric industry was where it was first used as a real productive. It was used to get water out of coal mines in Great Britain. That was The main purpose but it created two classes it created the entrepreneurs who were these people who could come from nowhere and create great enterprises and great fortunes and it created the intellectual class there was no class called intellectual class and these are the people who hated entrepreneurs because yep. they didn't deserve their status. They weren't educated. They didn't have aristocracy. They hadn't come up the normal way. And I think it starts there. And then you see the the 19th century was a phenomenal entrepreneurial decade. And of course, it's gotten exponentially larger.
0: Yeah. You know, I define an entrepreneur as someone who finds a juicy problem and solves it. Yeah. That's my definition. And I think Today, more than ever, especially during this exponential age, the ability for a single individual to make a dent in the universe, to find a problem-solve a problem, is greater than ever before. Yeah, if you think about what it takes to become an entrepreneur, I'm curious, for those who are entrepreneurs, you know it, you thrive on it. I'm on my 26th or 27th company, some really good ones, some spectacular failures, and everything in between. But I think if I were to rattle off the list of things, first of all, it requires passion or obsession with a subject because it's not easy. It's much easier just get a job and do what you're told. So that's the first thing. I think it requires a reasonably high risk tolerance because if you're really doing something on your own that hasn't been done before and you could lose it all, and you're not sure where your next paycheck is coming, which is some part of the early entrepreneurial journey. Risk is there. And then I think there's a certain amount of self-confidence, I would say, having an understanding of the problem you want to solve, and possibly not required an expertise you're bringing to the table, because a true entrepreneur will not ask how, but who, right? As you've famously said, they'll pull together a team. What are the other elements that you think of an entrepreneur needs to have?
1: Well, I think the one that I've noticed because I am fascinated in people's history. So whenever I meet an entrepreneur, I said, you know, when you think about the entrepreneurial path, which is definitely a fork in the road from the way that most people think about their future, when did you notice it showing up? If you had to go back to the earliest age, that you were doing things different than your peer group was doing. You were doing something different than them. You wanted to have a direct relationship with the marketplace. Okay. You didn't want a buffer of someone who guaranteed you income, didn't guarantee you security. You wanted to hit the
0: yeah. marketplace. So, so do you remember? I mean, I was, do. I do. I remember I was in high school. I started a, Snow removal service between my house and my friend's house a few miles away. We went door to door and sold snow removal for 20 bucks a shot. Wow, that was good because that would have been the late 70s, I think. Yeah, the problem was we had a record three-foot snowfall on one day and destroyed the business because I couldn't take care of it. But, you know, that was my first effort. But my real entrepreneurial journey was my first year at MIT when I started a national and international student space organization called Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. And it was this bold, crazy vision that actually came true. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And there's like this element of surprise and delight when you start a business and people, and it was a nonprofit and I got hooked. I got addicted on the idea and creating something that people would participate. How about you, Dan? What was yours?
1: Well, I grew up on a farm, so farming is a very risky entrepreneurial business and our farm failed. My father recreated himself at age 60 as a landscaper. He worked right till he was 82 and he had his best business year. He died at 83, but he worked full time when he was 82. And then he packed it in. He packed it in. He said, I can't do it anymore. And my feeling is that the day my father wasn't doing business. He didn't know who he was. Yeah, And he just said, I'm out of here. You know, that joy that you talk about the excitement and a lot of it is just the applause. I think applause really keeps people in the game. Teamwork, deadlines, you know, having to create new solutions. But you're doing it face to face with the marketplace. So you're really getting the best kind of research for the development of what you're doing. And it's check writers. Check writers are crucial. And you want to be paid directly. You don't want to go through a third party. You don't want to have five levels of money yes. coming down to you. And what I noticed just to finish this topic, that it shows up very early. I mean, the instinct for it shows up where it's chosen. I think there are people who are forced into it because of the failure of a large employer and that happens. But I noticed the ones who started early, tend to create new things more than the people who are forced into it. And you had a very divided, not only postgraduate, but you were already added in undergraduate because you have your famous getting your medical degree. Yeah. Because medical school received the least amount of your passion. and
0: interest. <laughs> Yes, and very true. I mean, when you're hooked as an entrepreneur, you love what you're doing and you're excited to jump out of bed in the morning and go and see... What are the results of what I did yesterday? And what can I do different today? Yeah, Dan, I think it'd be interesting to ask a question and get your insights, and I have a few to add, of what don't people realize about entrepreneurship? Like, what are some of the surprises that if you haven't been an entrepreneur and you become an entrepreneur, what are the surprises that most people don't know about? I have one I'm going to say. The surprise is you're going to spend more time with your coworkers and your co-founders than you will your family or your kids. Yeah. The reality is starting a company is never easy. Most companies are, you know, overnight successes after 10 years of hard work. And so pick your co-founder and your employee team that you're working with carefully because they're going to be as close to you and sometimes closer than family. What about you, Dan? What else? Surprises. Yeah, I
1: think the biggest thing I often said, if there's a God in the entrepreneurial heaven, the name of that God is cash flow. Yeah. Yeah, getting the cash flow routine because you have to market and you have to create. And it takes a while for you to get these two together that you can't just create and solve problems and then start marketing. You have to do both of them at the same time. I think that's the hardest thing, I see more bankruptcies, I see more failed businesses, just because they didn't get cash flow down. I went bankrupt twice in the late 70s and early 80s, and it was strictly receivables that killed me, you know. So in 84, we made a decision, me talking to myself, that I would never have another receivable that what I was doing would get paid for upfront. People said, well, people just won't do that. And I said, well, I'm just going to find the check writers who would be willing to do it. But there you really have to be thinking in terms of their goals. And I think that's the next thing that you have to understand that all of your money is in the aspirational future of
0: your best clients. It is. You said something really important about cash flow being critical. You know, as an entrepreneur, you're going to make a decision early on. On if you're going to use your own money and your own blood, sweat, and tear to get the company going, are you planning at the end of this to own 100% of your own company? Or are you going to go out there and raise money from, you know, friends, families, angel investors, venture capitalists, and slowly, you know, dilute yourself from 100% ownership down to Many times it may be down to twenty percent or ten percent, and I've done both, and some of the crazy moonshot ideas require massive amounts of outside capital. but the companies that I've started and owned myself and I started the company based upon making the first sales and building it on cash flow have been the most fulfilling. Do you want to speak to that, Dan? Well, <laughs> I can remember when, you
1: know, we started collaborating and A360 got created and it was that the first really big one we did a Sample version and
0: that's used in Silicon Valley,
1: right? Yeah, that's when I became fully human in your eyes, because
0: (laughs) you brought check writers.
1: (laughs) I put butts in seats, you know, and (laughs) and I said, I think I was more of an abstraction or a theory before that. I remember the day before we did that first event, which was incredibly successful and has been ever since all the money was already in you hadn't put the presentation on and he said boy i haven't actually presented anything yet everybody bought
0: the tickets everybody
1: bought the tickets and so i've just stuck with that one model for our whole life and we're up you know The real program, strategic coach program, I had 15 years of one-on-one and then we went to a workshop for him. And the reason was that Babs and I are Americans who live in Canada. When we moved to Canada, they said that the tax system is voluntary and I thought it meant optional. (laughs) So the one-on-one career was over and I said, we're gonna have to do a workshop to pay our taxes. And I say that because There's the story that entrepreneurs tell about how their business, you know, they were very systematic, they were very strategic. And then there's the actual story (laughs) that actually got you started. We were scared silly because we didn't think we could coach a room full of people. And we had six people in the first group and we weren't charging same as if I was charging a whole year for a single individual but it was 80% times 6 so it was five times bigger. Yes. I, and I died and went to heaven on that day. When you get entrepreneurs and they're talking to each other, yes. they love the failure stories. Yes. That's the other thing about entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are the only people who thrive on failure stories. Corporate execs you can never get people to talk about that. You know, government bureaucrats, nobody talks about their failures because They're
0: swimming among sharks and it's blood in the water. For sure. So other truisms about being an entrepreneur, if you step into that lifestyle, you know, the result is the buck stops with you and everybody looks to you. Mm -hmm. Something that we talked about in conversation before this podcast was the notion that, and it's a distinction people need to realize is entrepreneurs don't need to be the CEO of the company. Entrepreneurs hire CEOs many times. And there are different phases of a company, right? In the beginning, it is N of one, it's you, and you're responsible for everything, and you'll bring in a team. And then ultimately, the thing I love is taking a role as founder and chairman or founder and executive chairman and hiring a great CEO to run all the day-to-day operations, the stuff that I don't love doing. I love the creative, I love the teaching, I love the strategy, I love all of that. Uh, You want to speak about the idea of entrepreneurs hiring CEOs?
1: Yeah. Well, in my case, I married my CEO. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Or she married me. I'm not quite sure how it went. But Babs, who's my lifetime partner in personal life and business life, she was really great at creating teams and to this day as a real gift for putting teams together. Okay. And she just looked at me and she said, you're just doing so much. One, that you're no good at. And the other thing is some of the things that you're no good at, you just don't do, like filing with the government and <laughs> uh, you know, paying attention to that. And so from the year before we actually started the program, she was just freeing me up. And there's one rule that she has in the company, and this goes back 34 years, it's free up Dan. You free up Dan to what he's doing. We have business meetings to run the company. And if there's more than three per year, I ask for an investigation. Why am I sitting <laughs> why, why am I in my meetings? But the way we look at it, it's like a live theater. If you think about the business of a live theater, there's the whole business of the theater, you know, which is all the backstage that has to go in to fill up an audience. And I'm responsible for what goes on stage. I'm the front stage guy and it's all my creativity that constitutes the front stage, but everything backstage, I have no part of. So is a
0: concept in coach- No,
1: what I say, there's no rule for this. There's no rule for this. It's how you want to have it. I mean, you created your entrepreneurial business for freedom, you want to be freed up to just do what you're passionate about, what you started the podcast with. It's about passion, but I think it's passion for freedom.
0: Yes, I mean, I think a true entrepreneur loves to do what they love to do. I would say if it's just about making money, you pick the wrong topic. You know, money comes as a result of doing what you love to do and what people need. But I was going to get to the idea that you speak about in Coach, which I love, which is unique ability. Mm -hmm. And as an entrepreneur, it's understanding what your unique ability is. It could be that you're a coder. It could be that you're a coach. It could be that you're a writer. It could be anything. You can build businesses around any unique abilities. And it's also knowing what you don't love doing Mm -hmm. and finding people the who's to partner with to do those things you don't love doing. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, unique ability is really the concept, the cornerstone concept for what we've done. And my whole point is there that everybody's born and I think this is factory installed. People are born with a particular passionate interest in some sort of activity. And I think we've talked before about the school system. The school system, I think, tries to educate you out of a passion and wants you to be a generalist, you know, that you have to take everything. And it's very, very interesting. And we've had about 22,000 entrepreneurs who have, on average, spent three years in the coaching program. I can remember, on one hand, the number of entrepreneurs in 34 years. Well, actually, 48 years, because I started working with entrepreneurs in 1974. And I can't remember any of them saying that their formal education had really anything to do with their entrepreneurism. It's not that they're opposed to it or they're a thing. They just don't see it as a crucial factor to who they are as an entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, no, if it does have something to do with you, you became an entrepreneur during school and then school became a distraction for you along the way. Yeah. One of the speakers at Abundance 360 this year, Alexander Wang, who's the CEO of Scale AI, which is a multi-billion dollar company, he became the youngest self-made billionaire. He tells the story that he was at MIT and over the summer, he went to go work on AI and he told his parents it was gonna be just a summer thing. And he never went back. Uh, that
1: was the end of <laughs> That was, that was yeah. the end of school. Yeah, and I think it's happened so frequently. Certainly during the microchip revolution, it happened so frequently that it's almost become a cliche, you know. I think it was, (laughs) you know, she's in prison now, but Elizabeth Holmes, her big thing was that she went to Stanford and, you know, got everything she needed in, I think, not even a year, and then she went out. But that had become sort of... A model that Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. It was a badge of honor to drop
0: out of school. Oh,
1: yeah. 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 You obviously didn't have what it took. I mean, she had some other interesting issues with her whole presentation. But the thing was that she was following something that had been very, very dominant, especially in the 70s, I think, uh, was... It's an interesting thing, but it's almost like folklore. You know, well, if you go to university, then you have to drop out at a certain point or start your business and everything else. The vast majority of people do get an education, but they got an education because it was what you had to do. But it didn't figure prominently in the crucial center of why they're a successful
0: entrepreneur. Yeah, it wasn't like going to medical school to be a doctor, or going to law school to become a lawyer. And, you know, I don't actually know whether getting an MBA, there's one reason to go to get your business degree is to meet a lot of other people. Yeah. It's like the network that you get. But but I would I,
1: say network is a crucial.
0: Yeah, but I, I've written some blogs about the idea. Instead of going and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and getting your MBA, find a great network and plug into it or become an apprentice for someone you want to apprentice for.
1: How did that work for you? I mean, if you go back to your Harvard and your MIT days, I mean, I didn't. But it seems it, to me that you were making your network outside of both of those. Yeah, it was
0: all outside. You know, I built my space network through that first group I started uh, founded Students for Exploration and Development of Space. You know, Jeff Bezos was the president Of the Princeton chapter. And I met a lot of amazing people, but outside of school and same thing for medical school. I was checking the boxes and surviving in medical school to get that diploma and send it to my parents at the end. But my network was outside. Here's another attribute I think is important for entrepreneurs. And I'm curious your thoughts. I think to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to be a great communicator. You need to be effectively a salesman, a saleswoman, you need to be able to compel your idea and get people to get it, believe it, because you're, in the beginning, you're selling yourself and you're selling your idea.
1: Yeah. Can I ask you a question about that? What gets communicated? You say a great salesperson, but from your experience, because you've really been heavily into the venture capital community for a lot of your different ventures, What are they betting on? Are they betting on the idea or are they betting on the person?
0: So I think about funding and phases, right? In the beginning, there's the friends and family round. When you have an idea and you're going out and pitching to get some capital, and the friends and family round of any capitalization, if you're raising capital, they're only betting on you because you don't really have a track record yet. You really don't have a a fundamental idea And what you want is people putting small amounts of money on you and then following how you succeed. And if you are able to succeed and you keep that community of investors informed, then as they see you succeed or fail and learn something and then succeed, they're gonna be willing to put additional money in. And then there's the jockey or the horse is the conversation. But at the end of the day, a great entrepreneur with a mediocre business will reinvent it into a great business. You know, a great business with a mediocre entrepreneur will fail. Mm -hmm. And so it needs to have that level of a great person. But people in the early days are investing in you and the promise of the idea. They're definitely not. Well, it's the only thing real. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's the only thing real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, another question about that is really the failure, because failure has a totally different meaning in the entrepreneurial world yes. than it does in all other worlds. Uh, I mean, I can't think of another world. Like in the entertainment industry, it's still the same model. I think you may know him or have met him, Jeff Madoff. Yes, I know. him. Yeah, And Jeff, at age 73, decided to write a Broadway play, a Broadway musical play and started five years ago. And it opens in Chicago. It's gone through the first route to open outside of New York City. They had workshops in New York and then started in Philadelphia. And they had a three-week run and it was spectacular. I mean, they got rave reviews and sell-out audiences. But at each level, who was doing the funding moved up a level. You started off with people you knew, when you began, and now it's big, big money coming in. They have a 12 week run in Chicago. It's called Personality. And it's the musical history of Lloyd Price, who was the real first crossover rock and roll 1951, 1952. Babs and I just invested because my first thought in life is I wanted to go into theater. You know, I've got good skills. I've got good theater skills, but I don't have the passion you know, I wouldn't stick with it. I said, Jeff, we'll pay for the coffee. <laughs> We're on our third round. We put in, you know, not insignificant, but certainly not the top investor. But now you're talking about millions have to come in. You know, it's coming in from foundations. It's coming in from people who
0: are strangers. Yeah. There's also a different world today as an entrepreneur. You know, capital goes through cycles of being restrictive and hard to get, and capital becomes open and available. You know, in the late dot-com revolution, you know, there was like, I remember a friend of mine describing Silicon Valley as rivers of gold flowing, well you just put your ladle and pick it up, and then all of a sudden it shut off instantly. And so, when I think about, you know, guidance to an entrepreneur, it's okay to have a big, passionate moonshot where you want to impact, you know, millions or billions of people, But I think it's really important to have a business plan that delivers dollar one to a customer in the beginning, like you say, check writers, right? Because you learn a lot when you actually have to generate revenue at the start versus theory. How do you think about that? What's your advice to entrepreneurs who are getting started now?
1: Well, I think the faster you can, uh, one, I mean, uh, dollar one for the investor, but dollar one for yourself, so... Babs and I put in a policy right from the beginning that 15% of gross was ours right off the top every year, and we've done that since we started. We started off with two employees and now we have 130. We were just in Toronto and now we're in three countries. I have 16 other coaches and we've just had that constant model. So one of the things I'm always saying that every entrepreneur works out unique formulas People say, well, why do you live in Canada? It's so expensive up there. And I said, oh, there are some hedges. You know, there's, a, <laughs> there, there's some offsets. It's also easier to put a team together in Canada than the United States because Canadians are not nearly as mobile as people in the States. There's about 20 big centers that you could find opportunity. And Toronto, it's Toronto. You know, uh, Canada, it's basically Toronto or maybe Calgary
0: means people stick around for the job for a little bit longer than the United yeah, States. Yeah,
1: so we have 70 who have been more than 10 years. We have 25 that are more than 20 years. And the payoff for that, if they're good people and you're operating according to unique ability and unique ability teamwork, there's an enormous institutional wisdom that grows up in the company.
0: Dan, when you're hearing the pitch from a young entrepreneur, whether they're joining Coach or if they're at Abundance 360 or you just meet them someplace, are there elements that you say, well, this guy or gal is going to be a great entrepreneur or this person's dreaming. Is there elements that make you put them in one or the other bucket? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are they?
1: That The pitch is totally how the check writers benefit from this new idea. That there's problems that the customer has that are not being solved or there's better ways to solve the dangers they have, the opportunities they have, the strengths they have, and you've got a unique take on how they're immediately going to experience benefit. So, and if they don't have a handle on who the customer is, they're making up fancy futures.
0: Yeah, that's a real important point. I would say it a slightly different way. If you've got someone who's got a neat technology that's searching for a problem, that's a failure mode over and over again. Versus someone else, yeah, and you've
1: seen uh, I mean yeah. I think probably the you know the microchip I think this all starts when Gordon Moore put together a prediction line, you know in the nineteen sixty five wasn't even called microchips I think seventy three is when the term hit on. It was very, very clear that this was a historic game changer that there was going to be something. I think there was a lot of people throwing solutions at nine problems because people were throwing money at new solutions. But I suspect if you go back to any other, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, that was the case. And there are a lot of people have money that they don't need and they just want to
0: throw it at somebody,
1: you know.
0: Or at some problem to learn about. If you go back, you know, into late 1800s and early 1900s when electricity first became Viable, the entrepreneur de jour or the invention de jour was taking a mechanical thing and adding electricity to it. Oh yeah, right? you know the electric dishwasher. Well, in
1: 1910, there were three thousand car companies in the United States. Crazy, and forty percent of them were electric cars.
0: Yeah, that's even crazier. And now, of course, we're in the midst of the generative AI revolution, yep. where everybody's throwing generative AI at their favorite problem. Oh no. It's
1: new, but there's a classic pattern on on what happens during the early days. People are betting on the bet. In some ways, they're not even betting on the thing. They just want to see, you know, I mean, there was the recent example, not naming names here of in the crypto world. And the guy got 220 million and he was in shorts and somebody said, I love the founder. I love the founder. You know, <laughs> you know? I just want to give him two hundred twenty million dollars. I
0: could not imagine who that could possibly be. Yeah. All right. So I want to maybe wrap with a, a rapid fire session on this podcast of like advice to someone who wants to be an entrepreneur or thinks they might want to be an entrepreneur. It's like, what do you need to think about? I'm going to throw out the first one: choose your co-founders wisely. You're going to live with them, spend time with them, make sure they bring a different, unique ability than you do, and that you're talking all the time and sharing your ideas and your challenges. and You have respect to their person. What's another piece of advice?
1: Yeah, I would say the other thing is make your first hire an artist.
0: Really? That's unusual. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, because they can take your ideas and put them into graphic form. Can it and- be
0: Dolly 2 or, or Stable Diffusion?
1: Well, my rule is I always keep a smart human between me and the technology. Okay. But my first hire was an artist. He was 16 years old, and he was into computers. So this was 1987, 1988, I promised him a Mac 2 if he came aboard. You no, know, It was the little Mac to start with, you know, the little box-like Mac. Yeah, the Mac Plus. But we told him that when the Mac 2 came in, they did get that. You know, I mean, he was a dream. And, but I have artistic skills. I was a layout artist in the advertising world. So I knew the basics. And he says, how come we always use Helvetica? And I says, because everybody uses Helvetica. I know, but we should be different. I said, there's a reason why everybody uses Helvetica, you know. And so I hired an artist. And because we had fantastic slides in those days, and you could tell your whole story.
0: Dan, you're dating yourself way back where? late
1: <laughs> 1980. I mean, I was old in 1980s. So I mean, I'm, uh, I'm timeless now. Yes, you are. You are.
0: You're only halfway done with life, at least halfway. At 78.
1: No, that was my first, and I people said, well, why not a secretary? And I said, first of all, you can hire them by the hour, but you want to get your image of what you're doing
0: in picture form as fast as you can. All right. Well, we now have generative AI to help us on that. I'm going to throw out another one. Pick a subject you're obsessed by, not interested in, that you pick a topic for your business or company that you're passionate about, you're obsessed by, and it's not a passing fancy.
1: It's a passion
0: for or a passion against. Well, it could be a passion for or a passion against, right? Yeah. It could be a problem that you refuse to let go on any further. I'm going to solve this no matter what it takes, or I'm ex- I'm going to create this. What's another piece of advice?
1: Mine is talented, successful, ambitious entrepreneurs yeah. who don't have any lifestyle goals that they're heading towards and don't have any status goals. They just have growth goals.
0: Okay, I buy that. Understand your unique ability Mm -hmm. and do that, which you're great at and you love doing, and then bring in partners or employees who do the other stuff for you and support you. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Oh, another one you mentioned earlier. Generate dollars on day one if you can. Get to check writers.
1: Yeah. Get a fast turnaround on your first. So I have a 90-day turnaround on anything new that I create. Yeah, It's in the profit after 90 days. You know. And mind you, I'm dealing with ideas. It's not with stuff, You know, so I can do that. But uh, I remember when A360 got created and I said, you're going to have an enormous amount of money before the first day of this. And we did. We did. And you were able to grow your
0: team from that and... For sure. I mean, the equivalent here is build a minimally viable product, an MVP. You can prototype it. You can start selling it. You can start taking out Google AdWords and testing it. You can throw up a Shopify page and see if anybody wants it. You can go to a variety of platforms and get customer feedback. Get customer feedback. Yeah,
1: The only person who can tell you it's a good idea is somebody who would write a check for it. Nobody else... Your friends your family especially not your staff you're paying them they don't think any new idea is that good
0: well it's interesting right on the flip side sometimes your staff will tell you it is a good idea when it isn't I remember I was interviewing Elon Musk on a Goldman Sachs stage and he said something i will never forget he said your friends tell you how great everything is your best friends tell you what suck so make sure you've got people yeah
1: but check writers will just tell you that. They wouldn't pay for it the way it is, but if you've made some adjustments, and that's great market research, you know. And I think it, you mentioned Elon, and I think Elon is, from my perspective, you, know, which is not close like yours is, of all the big tech people. I think he's the truest entrepreneur of them all.
0: Yeah, for sure. Sees a problem, jumps on it. Well,
1: not only that, but he continually takes big risks. Yes. And the other thing, he's got a very interesting, which I totally agree with, is fail as fast as you can and as often as you can. And pretty soon, you're going to get to something that nobody else could possibly have created.
0: Yeah, it's amazing.
1: He's got a different kind of nervous system, I think.
0: He does. He's also one of the most extraordinarily intelligent individuals I've ever met in my life who has a first well, principle thinking mindset. Yeah,
1: He read and almost memorized whole encyclopedias when he was a kid. His <laughs> understanding of geopolitics and everything. I mean, when Elon makes a big decisions like a $10 million factory in Mexico. 10 billion, <laughs> right, yeah. 10 million. Yeah, you can't round off with 10 million. <laughs> but $10 billion factory, he's sensing something in the wind. And the thing is that there's a shift on and where North America, the United States, Canada, and Mexico have just tested out supply chains from all over the world that aren't dependable. And he said, one of the things everybody's decided, it can be in Mexico, but it has to be on the continent. You can do it by truck, you can do it by train, you know, and everything. But the other thing, the pay scales in Mexico are about one sixth the pay scales in the United States at almost every level. The U.S. is six times the pay scale. And you have to have that with high technology. You got to have this spectrum of pay scales. I mean, he bought Twitter and everybody says, you know, he's just fooling around. It's like somebody buying a baseball team. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, it's really dangerous to second guess Elon Musk.
0: My guess is that when he takes it public again, it'll be at least 5x what he bought it for. Oh, yeah, with a number of new revenue streams. Okay, my last thought on entrepreneurship here to close out our podcast here, buddy, is it is one of the highest forms of artistic creativity. You're creating something that can change the world. If you've got a bent for it, if you're interested in it, I could not commend it more than, you know, a way of life. It is extraordinary. I, I love being an entrepreneur, and I love hanging out with entrepreneurs, and I think they're the most important forces of making the world a better place
1: i talk to people as if it's a career choice it's not a career choice it's a lifetime choice okay yes you have to understand that if you've been at it for five or ten years this is a life sentence (laughs) there's no going back they won't have you back and what are you going to show them for the ten years you know well who did you work for i mean who withheld your tax at source and everything like that. You, know, you become
0: unemployable after, after a year or two being an entrepreneur. Yeah,
1: and I would say that that's the actual decision that takes the greatest commitment. This is for life. <laughs> Certainly mine. I mean, the day I quit will be the day after I die.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, for sure. All right, buddy. As always, a pleasure to spend time with that you. That was a good riff. That was fun. All right. See you next time. Okay, thank you, Peter.